For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So Romans chapter 9, choice or destiny. We're moving into a new part. He's, 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 we can break up Romans into sort of these sections of thought, right? Chapters 1 through 3 are about freedom from the penalty of sin, why we need Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross, right? And then chapters 5 through 8, which is where we've been for many weeks now, is talking about this issue of sanctification, meaning how do we grow? How do we walk with God? How do we live in such a way where we're letting God change us and make us into more loving people, more kind people, more patient people? How does that impact our lives? How do we let God impact us? Now we're into chapters 9 through 11, where he's really starting to talk about this idea of God's sovereignty, the power of God, the right of God to rule in our lives and the impact that has on our daily choices. God is sovereign. He's the alpha and the omega. He spoke all things into existence by the will of his word and the power of his word, right? He owns everything. And so he's sovereign, but what impact does that have? What does that mean? I mean, when we try to contemplate something like all-powerful, it gets hard. It's like all-powerful, like you can do whatever, whenever, you know, and our brains start to melt down because we're, we're contemplating eternity, right? And we're finite beings. We, we have a hard time grasping all-anything, all-powerful, all-knowing How does that work? Because we're limited. And our experience has always been that of limitation. So what does it mean that God is sovereign? It has to do with these questions here. Are we free to choose our path in life? Are we free will beings that can make choices that matter? Or are our actions predetermined? Are they outside of our control? Are we all following a pre-programmed path and there is nothing that we can do? We are who we are. It is not ultimately up to us. God is so in control that none of us really has any say over what we do or who we are. Those are some big, deep questions, right? These are the questions that Forrest Gump was contemplating in the movie right? Are we the feather that's floating along in the wind? You know, are we just moving along in the breeze? You know, Forrest was looking at that and he was asking that question, you know, and he, the movie, the point of that movie was he kind of came to this conclusion, right? He said, I don't know if we each have a destiny or if we're all just floating around accidental like on a breeze but I think it may be both. Maybe both is happening at the same time, right? (laughs) That's the question. I mean, it's a big question. These are important. You know, on the one hand, we want to look at these things and we say, well, this is theology. This is theological. This is for the scholars, right? But it's important. The way you answer these questions, if existence is a product of chance, If we're all just feathers floating on the breeze, how can life have any meaning? If it's all an accident and we are just matter, and that is all that we are, right? And the matter that we currently possess is bumping against other matter in this particular form, and eventually that'll blow apart and it'll go on and on and on because matter cannot be destroyed. 
But it's all just a complicated illusion, the idea that we think that we have meaning, that we have purpose, that we have experiences. All those things are just chemical reactions, and they mean nothing. Or, if everything is predetermined and there's a creator who set all of this up and we have no choice, I think we have to ask the question, why did he do such a crappy job? Why is there pain? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? How can God be good if everything is predetermined? I mean, there is so much evil in the world that if we don't have choice, then God has a lot to answer for. Because there is a lot of evil, a lot of pain. And how can we be responsible for our actions? If we are all predetermined, and we have no control, and choice is an illusion, and the sovereignty of God extends to every aspect of your life, then why does he look at you and say, you're a sinner? All you are is what he made you to be. How can he hold you accountable for your choices when he's predetermined your choices? Do you see why theology matters? And we start wondering about these things when we say, this is important. How can God be good if everything in the world is happening according to his exact will right now, he can't. And it causes real problems when we try to answer and think about these questions. And let's take Forrest's thought here. Can it be both? Can we be an accident and a des- have a destiny? No. Forrest, you're cute, right? We love you, but you're not the brightest guy. And when you say something like, we can't each have a destiny uh, and be floating around, all accidental-like. You can't have a destiny and be an accident, right? It can't be both. That's a logical contradiction. And so those two choices, we can be an accident or we can be predetermined, but we can't be both. But it turns out there's a third choice that that movie doesn't even take into consideration. It's what I would call the biblical choice, which is that God is sovereign, and he has the right, the ability to predetermine everything, right? He could do that, and he does do it in a larger picture, which we'll explain. He determines the larger scope and and course of human history. But he is so powerful that he has chosen to give us choice. He has created us in his image, which means that we get to make decisions that matter as well. He doesn't have to do that. But being all-powerful, he has limited himself. He has created a space where there can be other beings that make real choices that matter, and he is powerful enough to do that as well. That's the biblical picture of this question of determinism and destiny or chance. And if you're like, ooh, it's too early in the morning. Remember, we're moving to 10 (laughs) a.m. March 13th, right? (laughs) And, you know, we're going to spend the rest of our time here unpacking that, right? So don't feel like, oh, I got to catch up and I got to, let's talk more about this. Okay, let's just slow down. Um, And let's look at how Paul approaches this in Romans. He approaches this question in a super interesting way. Remember the flow of thought, where we've been. Last time we were at the end of Romans 8, and we were talking about suffering as a means of growth. 
that we encounter pain and that God can use our suffering, right? All people suffer, whether they're Christian or not, whether they follow God or not, because this world is broken. But we can let God use our suffering and give it purpose and give it meaning. And that the key to growing and letting God move in your life through suffering is trusting in his promises, believing in his sovereignty that he will come through when he promises you something that it will be true. And that's how we persevere through those circumstances. And he ends chapter 8 with this incredible promise of God. 8, 38, and 39, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? So the promise here is that no matter what, and no matter how bad you're suffering, know that you cannot be ripped from God's hand. He will not abandon you or forsake you. His promises are always good. And Paul, in his brilliance, you know, thinks about that and what he's saying there. And all of a sudden, he realizes my readers are going to have a question. What about Israel? And what about the Jewish people? They're the chosen people of God, right? They're the descendants of Abraham. God made them a promise. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through your descendants, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Jewish people are the chosen people of God. And yet they are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So if the promises of God are always good, what about the promise that God made to Abraham concerning the children of Abraham? And if we can never be ripped from God's hand, and if God will never reject us or forsake us, how do I understand what's happening as my fellow kinsmen, the Jewish people, reject God's Messiah? And it's like, wow, that just takes a radical turn there, doesn't it? But it, it leads into exactly that question. Can we trust that the promises of God are good? And so he finishes that at the end of chapter 8, and then, boom, jumps right into anticipating his readers having that question in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that my myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jewish people. He's, uh, he's a Jewish man. His kinsmen in the flesh are the descendants of Abraham. And uh, he has, he's gone as far as to say, I wish that I, I would go to hell if I could see my, my people come to know Jesus. I would rather, I would, I would do that that's how much I love these people. And it gives us an opportunity to address an issue that comes up from time to time. Is the New Testament anti-Semitic, right? People sometimes say, well, you know, it has this critique of the Jewish people. It's, it's pretty hard, right? And it, it talks a lot about the Pharisees and how sinful they are. And it seems like, you know, Paul is, is saying, you know, uh, some, some hard things about the Jewish people. Well, you have to remember that the New Testament is written by Jewish people. At this time in history, Christians don't see themselves as not being Jewish, right? 
That wouldn't happen until after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Paul's writing this in the 50s. So Christianity is a sect of Judaism in their own thinking. And as they critique the Jewish people, they're critiquing it from within Judaism. They're talking about themselves and their own people. In the same way that the Old Testament is very critical of the Jewish people, right? God is constantly rebuking them and telling them, you know, not to follow after false gods and calling them a stiff-necked people. We wouldn't say the Old Testament is anti-Semitic. It's written by Jews about Jews. Well, the New Testament is written by Jews about Jews, but it also includes everyone else. It widens the scope, but it's still the same perspective. And by the way, the New Testament is about how to worship a Jew because our God is a Jew. So when we talk about the New Testament or Christians, biblical Christians being anti-Semitic, it's redonkulous. (laughs) Jesus was Jewish, okay? And so we have to put that in its proper concept. But what he's saying here is, is there's something about the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, in relationship to God's provision and the person of Jesus Christ, and they are turning away from God's provision. And what does that mean in light of God's promises? The nation of Israel clearly from Scripture is called to an incredible place of privilege. They are used by God over thousands of years in incredible ways. They give us the Bible, the prophets, They give us the sacrificial system, the temple. They give us the Messiah. All that comes from the fruit of the promise that God made to the first Jewish man, Abraham, that he would use their descendants in a mighty way and make them into a nation of mighty people. But at the time that Paul is writing this, the nation of Israel itself is largely failing to accept the promise of God, that he would send them a Messiah. So he's talking about that here at the beginning of 9, and he's talking about his kinsmen in the flesh, the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory of the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple and the service and the promises. He's saying all the things that I just said. Let's remember who they are, and let's look at what Paul is saying, present tense. The Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, right? He's not saying it belonged to them. He's saying it belongs to them. God's promises are still involved. They're still engaged. The people of Israel are still the chosen people. Well, how does that work? We keep reading, and he says things like, whose fathers are from, are from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. They brought us the law. They brought us the prophets. They brought us the Bible. They brought us the temple. They brought us Jesus. And they are the people of God. They are chosen by God. So God keeps his promises. And this picture that we can't be separated from the love of God applies to all of God's promises. But how does that affect people in the situation of the nation of Israel? Israel has rejected the Messiah. What will happen to them? Are they predestined as God's chosen people? Meaning if you're born a descendant of Abraham, you're saved. You're going to heaven. 
It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you do because you have Abraham's DNA. God has pre-programmed you for salvation. Or does individual choice, does faith matter? You see how this goes right back to the feather and Forrest Gump and all those questions. How do we understand this question in light of the larger question? And so he goes on. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And so he begins describing this and he's like, he's saying, look, it's the word of God is active. The word of God and the promises of God are always true. But let's examine the promise that God made to Abraham. God didn't say to Abraham, every one of your descendants will be right with me and go to heaven. That wasn't the promise. The promise was that he would use their descendants, make them into a mighty nation, and that through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He's talking about national election, that he's going to use a people group in a specific way as a part of his plan to bless the whole world. He's not talking about individuals and their standing before God, but that he would use the nation of Israel in a very special way. And he goes on and he says, What he said at the end of six there was, nor are they all children because they are descendants of Abraham, right? But it's uh, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And so Paul raises this really interesting point. He says, you know, Abraham had multiple children. Isaac wasn't the only child of Abraham. There were other descendants. There was Ishmael. Ishmael was the first child of Abraham through a different wife, through um, his wife's handmaiden. And Ishmael wasn't the recipient of the promise according to Scripture. He wasn't the one that God was going to turn into a mighty nation. His descendants were not going to carry on the promise and fulfill the destiny that God had promised through the descendants of Abraham. Now, Ishmael became a nation in his own right, a group, a people group, the Ishmaelites. But they weren't the ones who brought us the temple. They weren't the ones who brought us the Bible. They weren't the ones who brought us the Messiah. Whether Ishmael had a relationship with God or not is not in view. The point is that you can be a descendant of Abraham and not be a part of the program that God is talking about here. It was specifically through his son Isaac that this promise would be fulfilled. And so he goes on in verse 10 and says, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also, When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of he who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So Rebecca would have two sons, but only one of those sons would be the recipients of the promise. Jacob would become Israel. Jacob gets a name later. He gets renamed by God after wrestling with God. And he says, your name will be Israel. All right? Esau, his twin brother, who's about four seconds older and was red, he he became a nation of people called the Edomites. 
And those two nations had very different destinies, very different roles to play in God's plan. And Paul says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that's where we go, what? Why do you love Jacob and hate Esau? These are babies in their mother's womb. So God chooses one baby in Rebekah's womb to love and the other he chose to hate. Why do we have God hating the unborn children in wombs? Is that just? Is that fair? How am I to understand that? Is it predestination? Is it that Jacob was destined for salvation and that Esau was destined for destruction? And this passage, this entire passage in chapter 9, is often used by people as a proof text. They said predestination is, is, is the way that God works. There's nothing we can do about it. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. We, don't, we can't choose. God chooses for us. And they go to this passage and they say, See, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, while they were in the womb. Well, let's look a little closer at that, shall we? Let's talk about good interpretation, right? If you're going to ask, if you're going to say the Bible is the authoritative word of God, then your goal is, is to figure out what the author meant when they wrote it. What did he mean when he said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? Why is Paul talking about that? Well, let's ask that question. What has he been talking about up to now? Let's put this entire discussion in its context. Were we talking about how people are saved or were we talking about whether or not God can be trusted to keep his promises? We were talking about whether or not God can be trusted to keep his promises. Why are we suddenly putting salvation in here when we were talking about something completely different? Were we talking about individuals or were we talking about the nation of Israel? We were talking about nations. We weren't talking about individuals. So the context here is how God uses nations, not how individuals get their standing before God. Now we have more clues here because Paul says this, as it is written. Well, for Paul, when he says, as it is written, what, he's talk, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament, right? His scripture is the Old Testament. And he's saying that there's a passage in the Old Testament that says, Jacob I love and Esau I hate it. And if you're really sharp, if you're really astute, you're also asking this question. Why does my Bible font change all of a sudden in this verse? Why does the font change in a lot of our Bibles? Because he's quoting the Old Testament. The translators of your Bibles want you to know that this is an Old Testament quote. And so when you want to do proper interpretation, Paul is quoting this, assuming that his audience already knows this, but we have to go and find that quote. Where is it? And it turns out it's in Malachi chapter 1, which was written almost 2,000 years after Jacob and Esau were born. After they were born, after they had died. Let's look at Malachi 1 verses 1 through 3, which is what Paul is quoting. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. 
You see, the people of Israel are being oppressed. The nation of Israel is being oppressed. And they're turning to God and saying, why haven't you loved us? And he's like, I have loved you. You still exist. You're still part of my plan. Remember Esau? He was a descendant of Abraham. And the Edomites are gone. They have nothing left. Their people have been wiped out. But I will not let you, O nation of Israel, you, O Jacob, I will not let you be wiped out because I have a plan and I made a promise to your father Abraham. It doesn't have to do with how God felt about Jacob in Rebekah's womb and how God felt about Esau in Rebekah's womb. It has to do with how God uses nations. Jacob, the nation of Israel, was in difficult times. Esau, the nation of Edom, was not the nation of the promise and was destroyed. What shall we say then, Paul says in 14? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And the, and the predestination say, oh, look, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, right? But you go back into, and you look at the context in Exodus and in Genesis, and what does it say? This particular event, Moses in Exodus asks God, says, can I see your face? And God says, I'll show you some glowy parts as a gift, Right? Because I, I can give good things to the people I want, and I don't have to give them to everybody. It's not unjust for me to give special gifts or privileges to certain people or certain nations. It's not salvation that's in view. It's God using people, God gifting people, God bestowing gifts on different people, different nations, and using them in different ways. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. See, there's no choice here. It doesn't depend on man. It depends on God. But what is it? That's an important question here. What is it? Is it salvation? No, we haven't been talking about salvation. Again, the context is God's choice of nations. So he's saying it God's choice of nations doesn't depend on human behavior. It's up to him. He chooses to use people groups in different ways at different times. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth, so that when he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires... And again, they look at that and they say, oh, see, this is what we call double predestination. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians believe in this double predestination. They say some people were created by God, knit together in their mother's wombs, destined for heaven. Their choice has nothing to do with it. And others are vessels for destruction and they're going to hell and they have nothing to do with it. And just like Pharaoh Some vessels are created for destruction. And there's nothing that anyone can do because human choice is an illusion. God is sovereign in all circumstances and human choice doesn't matter. Remember the context. What are we talking about? We're talking about the way that God uses nations. God used Israel to reveal himself through through the prophets, to write the word, to provide the Messiah. He used Egypt to take in the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, to grow them into a mighty nation, and then to spit them back out intact and whole with their own beliefs 
not having intermingled with the Egyptians. And then he brought the plagues of judgment down upon Egypt. Why, the scriptures say, to declare to the whole world that there is a God in Israel. The judgment on the nation of Egypt brought glory to God so that when they came to the promised land and they show up at the first city, Jericho, this woman Rahab runs out and she's like, look, I heard about what happened in Egypt and I'm on your side. I believe, right? God had been glorified to her and they were like, cool, come on board. You're with us. God had revealed himself. He had used the nations in these ways. And then we have to take this. If you're saying, well, I don't know. I could go either way on this. We have to also take this. Scripture must be consistent with itself, right? And we could show you dozens of verses. I like this one. We'll just, for the sake of time, use this one. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If God's desire is that everyone would repent, why did he create people that cannot repent? How can that work? So you see, we see again and again and again, this idea that Paul is talking about is about nations. It's not about individuals. You're like, well, there's still some pretty creepy verses here in chapter 9. Well, let's read them. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for whom will resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? You know, this is the sovereignty of God we're talking about here. Why did God judge Egypt and not Israel? Well, how is that fair? And the Bible is very clear. It's not that Israel is like good. He says to them all the time, it's not that you're special and that you're so righteous that I have used you in this way. It's that I have an agreement with your father Abraham. The Israeli people, the Jewish people, are no more righteous than the Egyptian people, according to God. But he has chosen to use the, the Israeli nation in that time to glorify himself, and he has chosen to use the Egyptian nation for judgment so that the world would know that God is real. And he says, I have the right to do that. I made everything He goes on and says, the molded will not say to the molder, why do you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And again, the predestinationists say, say, look, God makes some things for wrath, and he makes some things for glory. And it's true. But he's not talking about people. He's talking about nations. And our interpreters don't like to put the funny font in here, but he is referencing another Old Testament passage. Let me show you. Jeremiah 18.3. He says, Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on a wheel, but the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel and it, that it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you 
just as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. That whole language of the potter's house, the potter's wheel, and forming and remolding is in the context of the way that God uses nations, which is the context of Paul's entire argument in Romans 9. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even as he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, So he's saying, guess what? And there's a new nation that God is using. And it's not a Jewish nation. It's not a Gentile nation. It's us. The citizens of the kingdom of God. There's a new nation. It's called the church. And God is using that now for a special purpose. For a way to connect and use in history to accomplish his will among men. And that nation, it doesn't matter what where you're born, what your race is, what your background is, that nation, the citizenship of that nation is obtained through faith. God's sovereignty is a chance. Are we all just floating around and there's really no God and there's really no control and we're all just particles crashing into one another? Is it destiny? Are we pre-programmed? Are our choices an illusion and some mad genius has put all of this into uh, motion somehow and we are all just puppets in a very complicated puppet show? Is it both? No, it can't be both. It is, according to Scripture, that God is sovereign, yet He has given us choice. Think of it this way. We put all of human history on a timeline. Put it out that way, right? And God says he's the alpha and the omega. Our choice doesn't affect the beginning or the end. God has destined those times. He has created the beginning. It had nothing to do with us. And he has promised an end. And we can't stop the end. That's his sovereignty at work. He's in control. But through that in-between time that we live... He set up the garden. He used the descendants of Abraham. He used the nation of Egypt, right? And as time has gone on, he's used the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans. He's used each of those nations in different ways. And you can read all about it in Scripture. The incredible ways he's used the nations of men against their will to accomplish his purposes because he's sovereign. For one purpose, one glorious purpose, to bring about the salvation of men, to help us see that we have a choice, that you as an individual have a choice. God uses nations in different ways. Look at Paul's speech in Acts 17, 26 through 27. He says, and he has made from one one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That 
they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God says, I use history. History is my puppet show. But the show is to lead you back to me, to get you, not you, Egypt, not you, Israel, not you, Assyria, but you, Bob, and you, Sally, you as an individual, all of this history is pointing to and painting a picture to bring you back so that if you would grope for me, if you would reach out your hand in faith, you would find that I am very close and I am very involved with you. And this has serious implications. God uses nations to advance his plan. But individuals within those nations have to make a personal choice. Let's look at another one of these scriptures. Romans 10, 9 through 11. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is racked with volition. Choice, right? You have to believe. You have to confess. You have to choose. Where is how are you born and God's sovereign predestiny, how does that figure into the fact that he says you need to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth? For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's a choice. No one can choose that for you. No one can take that away from you. It is your birthright as a child of God born in his image, fearfully made for a wonderful purpose to make that choice. Do I want to choose God or choose self? And we all have it. And what God does is he moves the world and history and everything else around us in his sovereignty to reveal himself, to show himself, and to make an argument that we should come home. The other implication, if this is true, and if choice matters that heavily, is that we can have an impact on eternity. You see, if everything's predestined, if everything is planned out, then it's all been determined and we really can't do anything. All we can do is hope that our children are born chosen. All we can do is hope that our loved ones and our coworkers and friends were chosen by God. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, go and make disciples of all nations. The Bible says, go out as ambassadors and be light in the midst of darkness. Because you are my chosen vessels to reveal myself to the world so that people can make the same choice that you have made to become my children. Why would he do that? Why would it matter one whit what we do or how we behave or who we talk to or who we love or who we serve? Why would it matter at all if it were all predetermined? The scary truth, the weight of what I'm talking about is there are people in your life who might be destined for hell, who might choose hell, and you could be a changing force, a factor in that decision-making process that could change that for them. Do we live our lives as though that's true? That's the, why theology is important and why the decisions we make 
about understanding what God is saying about these things matter. Next week, we'll be talking more about this. We'll be talking about how nationality, nationality, religious ritual, race, and socioeconomics don't trump faith. It doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters about your relationship with God. What matters is what you believe. God, I just want to pray for anyone here whose head is swimming, thinking, I, I don't know who all these people are, Jacob and Isaac and Ishmael, and I don't know about all of this. I just pray, God, that um, you would speak to them about their choice, because that's what matters here. And um, that you would help us all. We all are at different places in our understanding of your word. And thank you that you move and that you will help us to grow and learn in our understanding. And we pray for anyone, God, that doesn't know you. We just pray that they would hear you knocking on the door of their heart and uh, that they would, they would hear that clearly and make a choice. And for the rest of us, I just pray as we go out into the world, God, that we would realize and, and be aware. Help us, give us an extra sense of, of sensitivity. We're going to go to a Super Bowl parties tonight and there are going to be people there that don't know you. Uh, and those are going to be opportunities to bring love and truth into people's lives. We pray, God, that you'll give us boldness and courage in the midst of that to uh, be ambassadors for you. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.